If you have your Bibles, you can flip or tap your way on over to John 11. Um, we're going to have a little bit of a marathon read here today. Um, we're not taking the whole of the chapter, but verses 1 to 46. And on the docket for today, grief and glory, prayer and power. Grief and glory, prayer and power. And I know that most of you just got comfortable, but if you're able where you are to stand, um, this is just to say that we want to respond to God's Word, which we say is alive and it's active and it's able to move through the power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So even if you're at home, if you would stand, if you're able uh, to join us in this, if three minutes is daunting, um, Josh, I'm thinking of you with a hairline fracture in your foot, stay seated or, or see what you can do. Apparently you can rush fields at the Iowa game, so um, standing for the reading of God's Word ought not be a problem. John 11, 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany. It's the, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And then, uh, th this is Mary, whose brother Lazarus in the lay sick was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So uh, the, the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there, they tried to stone you and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by the world's light. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, well, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Again, John's kind of whispering this to us. Jesus had, had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And then Thomas, and we're all Thomas now, said to the rest of the disciples, well, let us also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had been dead, had been in the tomb for four days, and now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I, now, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, no, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. And after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here and is asking for you. 
When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. And now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. He said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid them? He asked. Come and see, they replied. And Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And once more deeply moved, Jesus came to the tomb. It was a cave, a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone. But Lord, Martha said, the the sister of the dead man, by this time there was a bad odor for he has been there four days. And then Jesus said, did I not tell you if you believe you will see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. And Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, the best line right there. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. So what's, uh, what's going on here? We'll do a, a quick recap. Jesus gets a report that a dear friend of his has fallen ill. And this seems like this implicit request for him to come and actually do something. Uh, we even learn that Jesus loves this friend, Lazarus, and his family, Martha and Mary. And immediately the story gets kind of complicated because when Jesus hears this, instead of going immediately, he chooses to delay his departure. And this is kind of a curious course of action considering the fact that Jesus' word could release healing, that he would put his hands on people and they would be cured of their ailments. And so where and what is Jesus doing? Like in a moment of distress, the people around him want his presence and yet what he does is he stays. And that's not all, like this whole scene, all of chapter 11 really is loaded with this tension. It is just chock full because if Jesus goes to Judea, he's entering into this contested space. It's actually a threat for him to go there. We hear this in the disciples' words, Lord, they were trying to stone you there because this is the place of conflict. And you're going to see on this map behind me that uh, this is the, the bulk of Jesus' ministry takes place in this northern region called the Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. And Judea is where you're, it's going to be down in the south. This is the place of Jerusalem, the temple where the religious elite were. And then, you know, that line, Bethany, was about two miles out. 
So this is where this tragedy has taken place. But if Jesus goes to Bethany, he enters within, well, within shouting distance almost of, of, of Judea, of, of Jerusalem. This is the place where people have set themselves against Jesus. And after this, after two days, this is where Jesus goes. This is where Jesus resolves to move is toward the contested space toward Judea, toward his friend, toward conflict. And here in Bethany of Judea, Jesus makes it explicit what he's about. He has this line, the infamous line, I am the resurrection and the life. A while back, um, when I was first like invited to start teaching in spaces, I was given this passage to teach on, and I, uh, there was this line that I could remember from Colonel Sanders, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken? And he says, I am, well, he's got the great mustache. I am Kentucky Fried Chicken. And I was like, oh, everything that has to do with Kentucky Fried Chicken has to do with the colonel. Is this what Jesus is doing? Is he saying everything that has to do with the resurrection has to do with him? And I know that's a silly little illustration, but I think it is. It's everything that has to do with resurrection and life finds its inflection point in Jesus of Nazareth. Quite kind of a bold claim to make. And this reality, what we'll see, it's, it's a reality that unbinds death grips. It, it releases new life. Because John 11 is a story about grief and glory and prayer and power. And so we're just going to kind of take these themes in order. Grief and glory, prayer and power. If you're like a note taker, grief. My hope is, is that if you've been around Gateway for any amount of time, that you would have encountered a people whose movement towards you and with you and around you is one that is, um, is open. It's willing to receive what is going on in your life. This is not going to happen perfectly. I'll touch on that in a moment. But this is my hope is that we would be the type of people who with you can get what is on the inside out. And that's a simple definition of grief is to get what is on the inside out. There's a, a grief expert David Kessler, you may know from the work on grief and grieving, this is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, kind of has the stages of grief, which are not necessarily linear. It's kind of like a bird's nest. It's all tangled together. But, but Kessler will describe grief as these multiple feelings happening at once that we have to learn to imagine, uh, manage. It's this swirl of anger and sadness and, and bitterness that are all woven together. And in a moment, we can be caught up in a swirl of anger. Or we can be caught up in a swirl of sadness and it's like this, like a tornado that kind of touches down at a fine point, but it's super powerful. That's what can happen in those moments. And so what he says is we have to get into it. We have to break up that swirl. And so he offers words like this. When you name it, that is when you name your grief or your emotion, you feel it and it moves through you because emotions need motion. Emotion is literally energy in motion. Emotions need emotion. It's important that we acknowledge what we go through. And sometimes we try not to feel what we're feeling because we have this image, and I appreciated this language from Kessler. Um, we have this image of a gang of feelings. If I feel sad and let the sadness in, it will never go away. And the gang of bad feelings will overrun me. And the truth is, as a feeling moves through us, we feel it and it goes, and then we go on to the next thing. 
Now this is easier to read off of a page uh, and much more difficult to act out, like to actually feel your feelings, not to like be like Drake and be all up in your feelings, but to feel it, to recognize it, to see it, and then to allow it to go forward so that you can continue to be present. The thing I found helpful though is this last line, that there is no gang out to get us. We actually get to listen and learn from these things because grief is an invitation to be present what's happening in and around us. But what I find myself learning in this season, you know, we just did this whole series called The Emotionally Healthy Church. And uh, what I'm learning is that there can be some buffering that takes place in my life. Whereas unlike Kate Maybe, who has very little buffering from her heart to her hands, I have like an immense amount of buffering from my head to my heart and my heart to my hands. So I've learned to hold things theologically and never embody them personally. And then in the church, I actually grew up in a space where that's all you have to do. I grew into a space where you could think the right things theologically, you could have the right doctrinal statement and never embody it, and it didn't matter. But the reality is, is it actually like, it affects bodies, it affects our body, our community. Because grief is not just this personal thing where I learn what's going on in and around in my own soul and I get it out, it's actually this invitation to others. It's that in the sadness and the anger or, or like the, the loss of summer which seems to happen in a moment's notice. That is an invitation for other people to come in. It's an invitation to move and hold that grief. And for like emotionally constipated people like you and me, this, emotionally constipated, this is actually a technical term that talks about how we, I think you can get the visual image. Um, if you're watching for the first time online, uh, poop jokes are gonna make their way regularly into these things. And I guess this is, that was unnecessary. Emotionally constipated, we hold these things literally and they're bound up within us. But this is not the case in Jesus's context. You see, um, he, he actually has the language culturally to move into this stuff. And he has the, the cultural fabric to hold together these types of realities. We actually see this uh, pretty specifically in our passage. If you look back at verse 31, what you're gonna see is this. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was, she saw him, she fell at his feet. She said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would have not died. Jesus weeps in this moment. But notice the assumptions of this little scene. Uh, what, what do I mean by notice the assumptions? Well, look a little closer. Uh, who is with Mary when Jesus shows up? It's not rhetorical. Who, who's with Mary? The, the Jews. The Jews are with Mary. The Jews are right there. And what are they doing? They're offering comfort. How do we see that? Well, John records that they're crying with her. And why are they crying? Well, they're entering into a cultural practice called sitting Shiva. If you wanna have a really nerdy moment, you can Google Shiva in Babylonian Talmud. This is like an ancient text that walks the Jewish people through the ritual of seven days. They actually dislocate their lives and they sit, they enter, it's counterintuitive. When a person is grieving, you would be like, you figure they want some space. No, that's just how maybe we want space. No, you enter into the home of the grieving and if they're gonna cry, you cry with them. If they wanna talk about the death, you talk about it. You sit with them in the midst of that for seven days. And then for the rest of that month, 
You don't celebrate things, but you read this prayer that is a prayer of mourning, and that whole month you go through it, and you don't have the normal festival-like mentality. And then for 10 months after that, you continue to mourn with them through praying this prayer. It's called the Kaddish. You pray the Kaddish prayer with those people. For 11 months, you walk with them through this. These people are sitting shiva. They know how to grieve collectively. They don't only have the language, but they have the action with it. They've embodied it. That's the assumption, is that grief is a communal practice. And this is, I guess, where this buffering has a real-life consequence. And I confess, more often than I care to admit, that this is something I struggle to embody. Um, you know, it's what ends up happening in, 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 in my life and even in the context, the contours of this community is that in a moment of hardship, what I end up doing is I end up offering prayers in the place of presence. And rather than asking a simple question, like who can I share this with and how can we help you carry this burden? I assume that they actually want to be left alone because that's how in my emotional immaturity wants to be treated. But the church actually is a community in the tradition of Jesus that draws us out. But our, our community, we're just learning how to do this. There's some people like the Bowsers and the Andersons and the Kate, maybe really everybody here, um, with the exception of Kyle, like we know there's like these impulses to care for one another. And so, Lord willing, we would be this type of community that would weave this fabric, not just of grief, but there's a type of glory there. There's this reflection of God's love and compassion that comes out as a community grieves together, a type of beauty and brilliance. And this, think of the community that shows up with Mary. See, it's not just grief there, but there's this thing that's happening that in the face of death, they're saying, no, 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 death will not advance the way that it normally does. We will hold it together. We will bind up the breach because there's this new type of life set to break out. There's a glory about to, to enter in. And I love this. We actually see this type of glory. Um, we're going to talk about that now. So note takers, glory. This is, uh, the, the way that I'm talking about glory is in terms of a reflection of, of God's beauty in a community is a little different than how Jesus is talking about it in John 11. We hear it in, on his lips in, in uh, verse 4 of 11. He says this, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. You see, death's arrest, that is that line, sickness will not end in death. Death's arrest, according to Jesus, it not only adds to the weightiness and the prestige and the honor and the reputation and the brilliance, which, by the way, is the definition of glory, weight and brilliance and prestige, it does do that. Death's arrest does add to God's glory, but it also magnifies Jesus. And the question that we just have to ask is, um, How? How does death's arrest magnify Jesus? Well, we see it like this. You see, when a community shows up to bind up the broken, to stand in the gap, like the, like the Jews do with Mary, there's, a, there's this idea of this collective presence is reflecting God's glory. But Jesus is about to expand the glory, not just by reflecting it, but by revealing something new. And that's what we're going to see here in a moment. 
You see, Jesus is not trying to get rid of grief as a communal practice because in verse 35 we read, he weeps. He is in the midst of this. No, he wants to do more than reflect it. He wants to release God's love in a new way. And we see this, look down verse 38. Once more deeply moved, Jesus came to the tomb. And now this language, is, if you've been around churchianity or, or even like if you've not, this language should kind of haunt your imagination. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Are there any other stories in the gospels where there's a stone laid in front of a cave? Hmm, take the stone away and then I love Martha's line, but it's gonna stink. Jesus, he's, it's four days. Have you ever been driving down the, the highway and you see like a, an animal that's unfortunately been struck by a vehicle? Um, I remember when I was, a, you know, I was in high school and I was driving down a dirt road, which is what you do when you move to Michigan. And you start, you realize there are dirt roads. I grew up in California. I didn't know this was a thing. And then you go and you're like, oh my gosh, dirt roads and corn. This is Fantastic. So I was driving down a dirt road and I saw it was a, uh, it was the summertime. There was an animal. I think it was a raccoon and it had, uh, it was like, it was bloated in the middle of the road. And I was like, well, I think I have enough clearance to get over the raccoon. So I drove over the top and then, um, and then the raccoon stayed with me. And you know how your air conditioning pulls from the air outside? See, see the stench of death, it, it's pretty intense. Martha is saying there's something that's going to like mark that Jesus, Jesus don't do this. But then, he, but here at verse 40, Look how intense this is. This is how Jesus talks to those whom he loves. Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? In the face of death's stench, Jesus enters into this fragile space, not to dismiss the grief, but to show that there's something bigger than glory. There's something bigger than grief. I mean, this glory to help us reimagine life in the face of death. And look what Jesus does. Look where he goes, verse 41. So they took the stone away and Jesus looked up and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of those standing here so that they might believe that you sent me. And then he says these words in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I happen to think that these words are an extension of this prayer. I actually think in this passage, because we don't actually hear what Jesus prays. If you notice in verse 41 and 42, we hear that the Father always hears him, but we don't actually hear, is this a prayer of gratitude? I think the prayer that we hear is, Lazarus, come out, but you have to ask, what, what prayer did, did the Father hear? We'll get to that in a moment, but right now, what we see is that to manifest glory in the presence of the grieving, Jesus goes to prayer. And maybe, uh, maybe you saw this coming because we're in a series called Teach Us to Pray where we're looking to the prayers of Jesus and so you're like, oh yes, finally we're getting to the prayer. So we're moving from grief and glory to prayer and power. But you just have to ask, um, where is the power? And the, the two, prayer and power, they're kind of caught up together here. And I, I want us to walk through this for a moment, asking this question, where is the, the power? Because this is the question to ask, where is the power? Because a dead man who would have been like death's aroma would have wafted over everyone there. A dead man just got up and walked out of a tomb. 
So can we just hold on for a moment and just talk about the audacity of the gospel according to John and the fact that we're sitting here in a co-working space in 2021 talking about dead people getting up and walking away from death. This is crazy. So where's the power? Was the power in the, in the posture? Notice Jesus looks up to the heavens and he thanks the Father. And that might sound like a silly question, like are you telling me that if I like contort my body in the right way that God will hear my prayers? Not that silly of a question. Uh, third century theologian, Origen of Alexandria, he, he actually thought there was some power here. Let's hear what he said. We must carefully observe and examine what has been written concerning the position of Jesus' eyes he had changed his thought from his conversation with those below and lifted it up and exalted it, bringing it in prayer to the Father who is over all. And the one who imitates Christ's prayer, lifting up the eyes of the soul and bringing them up in this way from everyday concerns and memories and thoughts and intention must in this way address to God the great and heavenly words of prayer concerning great and heavenly matters. That... that there's, this is certainly about more than just what you do with your body. So you notice he said, the eyes of his soul. Does your soul have eyes? <laughs> well, see, in the biblical imagination, you don't just possess a soul, you are a soul. Like, that's who you are. And so this is idea of this whole life posture. But I, I think if we ask the question, where's the power that Origen would then sit here with us and go, yeah, 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 I'm not talking about like contorting your body. I'm talking about the way you posture yourself before the Father. But that doesn't quite enter into our passage very well, and it still leaves us questioning, where is the power? Maybe it's in the words that Jesus is saying. Maybe it's something about the way that he thanks the Father. But author J. Gary Miller has this to say, and I found this quite instructive, like, is, it, is the power just in the words Jesus uttered? He said, no. Uh, to pray is to accept the fact that one cannot help oneself. One has no grounds for boasting and has no other hope but to call on the name of the Lord who has promised to be merciful. This is the only kind of prayer that will be heard. And so, in other words, Jesus is simply throwing himself at the mercy of God. It's not necessarily the words, so it's kind of the posture, it's kind of the words, but where is the power? Well, the power is in the living God. Or if we were to say it negatively, there is no power in prayer but God. That might be an odd thing to hear a person who's teaching through a series called Teach Us to Pray to say there is no power in prayer. But, but what is important here is there's no power in prayer but God. Like we are not the ones that are generating this reality. We are ultimately dependent on the living God through the Spirit of God to move. And no doubt our orientation, it can impair or awaken us to prayer. Like there's something, I, sh I share this regularly and I don't think I'll stop, but Wednesdays I get to pray with a bunch of Pentecostals in the city of Des Moines and they like are on the ground. They are hands raised. They're like groaning. And there's this one guy, his name's Ben. And Ben will like be weeping. And it's, it's kind of intense. I'm like, I don't know what to do about this because is he, is he okay? This is super intense. But he'll just be like, Lord, And then he'll just be, I'm like, what do you do? Because I'm like, Lord Jesus, I'm like praying theological prayers. I'm trying to like contest. I'm like prayer correcting. And then I'm like, Lord, have mercy. I'm like, but he's just, he's there. He's in it. So I think there's something about our posture. Yes, but there is no power. Like we can't get hyped enough to do something. 
It is all in the power of God. We are utterly content, like we are, we are desperate for the mercy of God. That is what this whole series about discipling us to the way of prayer is to say, may we depend more on your mercy, Father. But if that's the power, where's the prayer? But do you remember those two days at the beginning of the passage? This is verses six and seven. Jesus hears the news. Lazarus is sick, but then he stays. He does not depart. What was Jesus doing? Is he just like, wow, that's really intense. I need to sit here. Um, N.T. Wright, he's, uh, he offers this suggestion. Actually, it's more than a suggestion. This is, um, he says this, there's only one conclusion. There's only one conclusion we can draw. It's very striking. In those two silent days, before he even told the disciples of the problem, he, Jesus, was praying, praying that though Lazarus would die, he would be preserved from corruption, praying that when eventually they arrived at Bethany, the body and the tomb would be whole and complete, ready to be summoned back into life. And when they took the stone away, he knew that his prayer had been answered. You wonder, where was the stench? Death had not set in. And then Jesus' cry, Lazarus, come out. And this is like just, this is like a child jumping into the arms of their parent. It's the moment where they're like, I trust you. I trust you. I'm, I'm just throwing myself into your care. And the implications, obvious as they are, like this this actually means that we get to, not that we have to, but we get to throw ourselves into the mercy of God. We fling ourselves into the Father's arms just like Jesus for life's sake. See, in a moment, we're gonna, we're gonna respond to this. And I'm gonna invite us into something that will feel a little bit awkward, but we're gonna practice this actually. And this might push against your culture. You might go, gosh, Kai, like, I just, I just bought a friend here today and you're gonna make us do something weird in prayer. Yes, I am. Because there's something like, we need to decrease the buffering between our hearts and our hands. And this is a space where we actually get to do this. You see, the irony and the beauty of this story is that life for Lazarus actually means death for Jesus. Because he goes to the contested space so that life could break out. John reports that from that day on, the leaders sought to take Jesus' life. And when Lazarus escapes death by the power of God, there's something more that happens with Jesus. See, Lazarus is pointing forward because Lazarus escapes death by the power of God, but Jesus conquers death by the power of God. And where Lazarus comes forth still wrapped in death's garb, Jesus leaves death in the grave. Do you see how staggering this is? that everything Lazarus is pointing to, the glory of that, something more glorious is gonna come in Jesus. Life is breaking out in Jesus. And we actually get to be a people who have the audacity to trust that. And even in the face of like, is this true? I, have, I just saw this past week a moment where life could have broken out and it didn't. 
And you're telling me life is breaking out. Yes, this is the community where life can still break out because we actually have this power of prayer, which is not our own. It's actually the living God activating those things. And I actually think that this is the place where we get to then drink deeply, and it's, it's through this. I found this. This is from a theologian named Ian Paul, and he prayed this little thing. So this is not me being fantastic or anything. These are just words that struck me. I'm going to invite us. Um, see, we're going to be led through worship here in a moment. We're going to respond with the bread and the cup. I'd invite you to stand. Um, and... This is not to, to like be contrived or to kind of like manipulate some sort of emotional high or something like that. I'm saying this because I don't want that to be the case. But I would, what I want to do is just have space where we can respond to this. You see, there's this, there's this kind of prayer that I think comes out from these words come out. And I'm going to read this. Um, I'm going to read this now. And in, in a moment, in between these two songs that we're going to sing, I'm just going to, I'm going to come back up and I'm going to kind of invite us into a space where we could actually cry out, where we could pray aloud for the people. Like, I want you to start thinking, who are the people who I want to see move from death to life, from cynicism to hope? And maybe that person is you. And then what we're going to do, and I know this is out of character in our community, but we're going to pray these things aloud in the presence of one another. Even if it is a whisper, there's something like we, we need, I need to move, get this buffering out. I need this direct connection from my head to my heart to my hands. And I think this is a moment we get to practice this. So hear these words. The reason I'm giving these to you is because maybe they can be words for you when we try this on. Come out. Come out from the tomb of your own self-interest. Emerge from the darkness of your insecurities and petty jealousies. Come out into the sunshine of God's grace and breathe again the air of life where there is no fear of death. Unwrap those signs of death and defeat which constrict you and prevent you living life in all its fullness. So right now, I, just, I want us to consider the bread and the cup. If you have it with you, I just invite you to, to take it out. Um, and I'm going to lead us into this, and uh, we're going to respond and worship. But um, you see, this is when Jesus came, he came definitively to say that death actually will be defeated. And every time we take the bread and the cup, we are joining with like a chorus of saints saying that death has indeed been defeated. And then as the community of Jesus, we like, we take this into ourselves to remind ourselves that there's actually something that moves through us, which is God's very life through the power of the Spirit. And so over the course of this next song, as we're like, we're singing about there being something that comes from nothing, about God making beauty from ashes, like, I just invite you to, to remember the moment that God met you. Maybe you were five years old, 15 years old, maybe it's today afresh, the moment that God met you. And then I also want you to just think about the person or persons who you want to see come to life. Like even if this, light, this season feels like void of life and it feels bland, maybe it's just you because in between these two songs, I'm, I want us to actually pray, church. Like to actually do this thing, even if it's under our, under our breath or maybe it's loud for us to try this on. 
And so I just invite you to take that body broken, the blood poured out for you, to remember this Jesus, that his, his blood is the blood of the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins, that you are washed and covered and cleansed, that there is hope in Jesus. And we get to be a community that says amen to that. Amen? Amen. So church, let us, uh, let's worship.